You're listening to Stan Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Ray Yu. And on this episode, we have another great author interview for you. Um, we're talking with David Yoon, the author of Frankly in Love and his most recent adult fiction novel, um, Version Zero. Rira, it was so great to have David on. I feel like you hear about David Yoon's exploits like all the time <laughs> these days, right? He has like his his YA rom com career. He's you know him and Nick Yoon, his wife, love, are like a YA rom com power couple, um, and and they also have a new publishing imprint with um, in partnership with Random House. Yeah, I was super stoked to talk to um, David, especially since I've met David like three times now and it's like this is the first time we're having a proper conversation (laughs) so it was really nice um we talked about how the internet is evil and tied to capitalism and how the one percent is terrible and how uh race is tied to class in terms of uh working in technology yeah Yeah, lots of deep conversations deep conversations (laughs) yeah deep conversations about um like the late stage capitalism that is the technology world, which are all themes in his book, um, Version Zero, that we had a, a chance to read. And we're very excited to talk to him about. Um, so, yeah, let's get to it. Please enjoy our interview with David Yoon. And hey, we're here with David Yoon, author, and I guess now publisher, David Yoon. How's it going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Books and Boba. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, we are here to talk about, well, we're here to talk to David about all his great accomplishments, but also about his newest book, Version Zero. Um, but before we get to that, we always like to start, because this is a book club about Asian and Asian American authors. <laughs> we always like to hear, like, how did you, how did you end up becoming an author and publisher? Like, what was your journey like as a writer? Like, was it always something that was part of your life or something that you discovered later on? It's definitely, it's, I mean, I love this question because um, for me, it's definitely been something I've always wanted to do. Uh, ever since I was in third grade, I, I wrote a story and I read it to the class and they loved it and they were cracking up and I was like, I like this feeling. And then I wrote, I wrote another story and I read it and it was crickets. And I was like, okay, okay, good feedback. Going to try to do better. Um, and since then, you know, my favorite classes have been English. My major was in English. I went to grad school for fiction. That's where I met uh, Nicola, my wife. Um, yeah. And yeah, and we, we learned about writing, but we didn't learn about the publishing industry. So we spent a lot of years just working our day jobs because they paid really well. Um, <laughs> And, and writing in the mornings or at night. Uh, and um, really, the our grad school contacts um, from Emerson College was the way we got to meet agents and people like that. It was that, that was our main way of networking. And the, the more you write, um, the more you can make your own luck. So when the agent, when you finally do meet an agent, they're like, well, show me your stuff. You have a bunch of stuff to, to show them. And so, I mean, I'm fast forwarding, you know, 10, 12 years. <laughs> yeah. No such thing as overnight success. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what the stories you wrote were as a kid that your classmates liked? It was actually going to another planet on a rocket ship. And there were like alternate versions of all my classmates, <laughs> of like alien versions. And I just, I just wanted to make people laugh. That's all I wanted to do, nice. which is get a laugh. Um, so my first effort was comedy i guess wow when did you realize that writing was a career because i feel like for (laughs) most kids and also especially asian american kids writing and the arts is not considered a career it's like oh this is something that you do on the side and your parents are very like you need to we sacrifice so much for you you need to go to med school law school i mean that's a stereotype but it's rooted in some kind of truth uh, so what was the moment <laughs> where you said, oh, writing is a career and I could do this for my life? 
I never, I never thought this. Like it took me forever to think that it could be a career. I mean, me and my brother were both like the, we're awesome kids, but we we're super nightmare kids, especially for Asian, Asian parents. Cause they're like, you know, you can be a lawyer or a doctor, go to Princeton, Yale. Um, my brother got into Harvard and then proceeded to study arts. Oh, and they're, no. they're like, what the fuck? And, and, you know, I went to UC Berkeley and I was studying English and they're like, what, you know, they have a business school. And I was like, what is business? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, I was just writing. I just knew I had to do it because if I, I knew if, if I didn't write, I would get really cranky and I would feel like life was meaningless. Um, even though like, I like my job, I actually like working in technology in the internet world. Um, I really like that stuff, but it was never, it was nothing compared to the satisfaction of finishing a story or finishing a novel. And that's how I knew that that was the real work and I had to keep doing it. Um, so, I mean, I went to grad school and my mom was like, okay. And, uh, and I just kept writing, um, for years and years and years. And it wasn't until, um, one of our good friends from Emerson college, Wendy wonder, she wrote a book called the probability of miracles. And the, the reason she was able to write that book was because she it was like some connection with her yoga teacher, um, happened to be an agent. And when the agent was like, what kind of stuff do you have? She had stuff to show. Um, that agent turned into Nikki's agent, which led to her publishing everything, everything. And the sun is also a star, both of which became really big hits. And that in turn got me hooked up with an agent. So it all just kind of cascaded. Yeah. Um, so when our friend Wendy Wonder first got published, that that's when the spark was like, hey, we could maybe do this for a living. Um, but we never imagined that we could do it full time um, because lots of writers have have day jobs while they're writing. And that's perfectly fine. Um, it's it's a, a perfectly awesome way to live. Um, and honestly, that was like only seven years ago. That we, it was really yeah. recently that we realized this. <laughs> I mean, getting a movie deal is is kind of a you know a, a big way to make it a living and not yeah. and, and quit your day job. And now you're um, both we were, um, kings and queens, like the the power couple of YA diverse romance <laughs> with your new imprint. It sounds like it's been a good seven years for you. I mean, we've we've been like super duper lucky. Um, we we're super lucky that we had champions at Random House and then later at Penguin. Um, both on the kids' side and now on the adult side. Um, I don't know. I, I think we've we just been really fortunate. Like like when we brought up to uh, Random House that we wanted to start our own imprint dedicated to, you know, featuring love stories, starring people of color, written by people of color. Um, you know, Barbara Marcus, who's the president of Random House Kids, she was like, okay. And she gave us her full support, which is amazing. Um, and so now we're this little boutique imprint um, but we have the, the backing of the, the monster machine that is Penguin Random House, the, literally the largest publishing house in the country. And so been getting manuscripts in and it's been really awesome to see like just the amount of stories there are out there. Yeah. Um, and the amount of demand there there is for stories out there. And I think it's great because when I was growing up, man, I had nothing. <laughs> I know people like people like what's your mirror moment I'm like I had none <laughs> like, I had yeah, literally I mean, zero I mean it, it is amazing to see the sheer volume of I mean it's still like it's still a drop in the bucket right in the grand scheme of things but compared to what we mm-hmm. had 10 20 even maybe like five or like seven five years, years ago, ago. Yeah. yeah oh yeah and now you have you know we it's always interesting when we interview um authors that are like my age or older um, because the story is always like, oh, we didn't have anything growing up. We didn't see anything. And then these days we have kids that are like getting published when they're, you know, not even out of college. Yeah. And I think it's just one thing that I've, that I've always um, thought about in terms of Asian diaspora, especially is we weren't allowed to dream to be artists because that wasn't like that dream wasn't available. We didn't have role models. We didn't have anybody who could do it. And the ones who right. were doing it were writing like those prestige, like, super deep immigrant stories about melancholy and ennui. And now we have so many authors like yourself, like writing about thrillers and love stories and romances and rom-coms. Like, I think that's. Yeah, totally. And like, there's, there's, um, I think, what's his name? Mike Chen. Um, Oh yeah. Mike Chen. We've, we've had him on our show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Awesome. I want to meet that guy because I started reading his book. um, We could be heroes. And I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. It's just <laughs> superheroes for people who hate superheroes, which is me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know, like we didn't have a lot of we weren't encouraged to do the arts. And it took me decades to understand why 
that was. And it came from, it really came from a place of love. And, and that's sort of why I, my first book, Frankly in Love, which is a YA book, um, it talked a lot about that. It's like my parents, my parents, especially, and Frank's parents in the, in the book, um, they came, they were poor and they wanted to give their kids a better life. And their, their nightmare was that we would go hungry, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's why they pushed us so hard to join, to get into these lucrative, stable careers. And so it wasn't like you can't be an artist. You're like you can be an artist. It's just, we don't want you to starve. And that's where it was coming from. Um, it took me a long, long time to figure out that they really, really meant well and that I should just shut the hell up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice that, um, like we have books for young readers who are going through that. It's like, oh, my parents want me to be a doctor. I hate them. And, you know, they read your book, Frankly in Love. And it's like, oh, actually, no, there is a reason why, you know, my parents want me to go in this route. It's because they do care and they don't want me to starve. And yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, and it's like twofold because it's like, one, you have um, a way to communicate to young readers like, hey, like, follow your dreams, but also your parents love you. And yeah. also like you have books where it's not just about immigrant pain. Like you, you can <laughs> yes, have love yeah. stories. And yeah. um, I know like in the past, like we've, we've done this podcast since like 2016 and it's, oh, and like, awesome, I know, guys. I know like oh, early on, <laughs> early on we were just like, Oh yeah. An Asian romantic lead. This is amazing. And now it's like, it's like canon. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I really just wanted to put myself into it because like, I honestly, our daughter, like the birth of our daughter was, was a huge motivator. Um, we didn't want to be those parents who are like, follow your dreams. You can do whatever you want. And then proceed to do exactly the opposite. I mean, I worked, <laughs> I worked as a user experience guy in, in tech for 12 plus years. Nikki was working in finance with the evil empire. I mean, those guys were it's horrible people. Um, and the, the idea of us still working in those jobs, I mean, I really actually love my job, so I wouldn't mind as much, but we, we couldn't look at our daughter with a straight face and be like, follow your dreams. Um, it was so, so it made us work really, really hard uh, to make those dreams come true. I mean, and there's a lot of luck involved too, but yeah. So yeah, like you, uh, you just said that you worked in tech for like, 20 years and uh it shows in your book um, version <laughs> zero and um i gotta say when i was reading it i was like i'm slowly getting depressed because uh i'm <laughs> i'm already a pretty cynical person and i already yeah. hate uh social media and it's just like wow like the internet is evil and <laughs> this book is just feeding into my uh anxiety <laughs> over privacy and just uh, my hatred for capitalism. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, my question is like, how long did it take you to write this book? Obviously you worked in tech for like 20 years. Like I'm guessing that you kind of like stitched together a lot of ideas that you've had over the years while you were yeah. working. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was actually a little over 12 years that I worked um, in, in tech. I started out as a web designer. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We we're just slapping crap together. And then, um, uh, then we had a more formal discipline, which is interface design, which became user experience, which is not just about what the thing looks like, but also how it behaves and how you attract customers and keep those customers and then track them, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's about, um, getting the customer to do what they want efficiently, uh, in a nice way, but also letting the business get users to do what they want. Um, so there's this push pull, you know, mm. uh, and there's a lot of like, I don't want to say mind control, but like there's a psychological aspect to it. You know, I worked in social media and in cybersecurity and I worked in ad tech and also advertising, but ad tech is different. It, ad tech is the technology that creates the profile, it scrapes the data to create a profile of you um, so that it can serve you the ads that it thinks are best. And I worked in one of these companies and we were coming up with new and exciting ways to gather new, new types of data um, and also new and exciting ways to show ads in front of, shove ads in front of your face and these were smart like really good people they just were nerds and they wanted to make cool stuff and and all of us to a single person had proxies and ad blockers installed on all of our devices so like i like to say that we were we were exactly the non-smokers working at philip morris like it was exactly that kind of paradox and it, i was like once you realize that you're like oh my god there's all kinds of paradoxes in tech 
Like we used to say, I'm not a number, I'm a human being. And yet we, we place all this emphasis on our follower counts and our like counts. And not only that, we enjoy it. That, that's the surprise to me is that we, it's not like a grudging thing. Like we actually enjoy it. We get a dopamine hit from it. Um, the same thing with like hashtags. We, we always used to say, you can't categorize me and stick me in a box. And we're literally putting ourselves in little boxes to make ourselves easier for the algorithm to find. Um, and we're enjoying that too. So I, it's, it's like a major shift in, in how we think about this ourselves as like sovereign individuals. Um, and I, I don't, I don't actually know what it is. I can't define it. Um, all I know is that it, I know, I know how I grew up, which was, seems like totally like free range compared <laughs> to now. Um, and I miss it. This comes up in your book too, because your, your main character, Max, is a um, son of two undocumented immigrants and his parents work in factories and create physical, physical goods. And, uh-huh. you know, a, a theme throughout the book is this idea that the world of tech doesn't create anything, anything tangible, right? And so, like, there's this saying that the product is free because the product is the customers. Right? It's their data. Yeah. It's their. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. everything that they willingly put on that platform for you to, you know, package and sell to, um, on paper advertisers. But who knows who they're really selling that data to, right? Oh yeah, that's yeah. very true. And when I was working in ad tech, you know, we'd say like. We'd say like our our male uh, age twenty to thirty um, sports fan is is way higher quality than this other company's male twenty to thirty sports fan because we have finer granules and and we talk about it like it was drugs like we would combine data from many different sources and chop it and mix it and then we sell it as a cocktail um, and uh, you know this is what Max is up against because number one Max is comes from he's a son of immigrants. And like all kids of immigrants, he doesn't, his parents don't understand him and he doesn't feel like he belongs in any particular place. Um, and so as a result, he kind of dives into technology because it, it, technology represents for him a chance to make his own context, make a place for himself to belong. And he falls in love with it and he actually becomes like really idealistic and he, he thinks that technology will make the world a better place. And so he gets really good at it. And he works for this company called Ren. It's a fictitious uh, social media giant. And he discovers that they're doing shady stuff with user data. And he blows the whistle because he's a good kid. Um, And he immediately gets fired, immediately gets uh, blacklisted in the industry. And he has this crisis of faith because what he believed in is suddenly not there anymore. And so he embarks on this mission. Um, He forms a hacker group called Version Zero, and they embark on this mission to expose the the big five tech companies for their sins against humanity, you know, through like this escalating series of hacks that get crazier and crazier. Yeah. Um, And that's because it was so personal to him. You know, that was his utopia that he was trying to build his own identity within. And it turned out to be nothing more than a capitalist playground for for VCs with way too much money (laughs) and time on their hands. Yeah, I mean, your story definitely has a certain point of view at all the the money interests that go into tech and what they're looking for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love that you include a quote in the beginning, don't be evil, which for people, for a lot of people who might not remember, was the motto of Google until it mysteriously disappeared from their documents like at one <laughs> point, like X number of, year, of years ago. Um, because, yeah, because they couldn't very well cross out the don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just say be evil. Yeah. And like, it's interesting because, yeah, I have a lot of friends who do work at these, you know, Silicon Valley companies and they just want to make cool stuff. The idea that technology can make the world a better place is kind of the ideal. But then you realize that like the people controlling how that money is actually made, it's still a corporation. The corporation is still fundamentally detached from morality, right? I mean, that's the, the main flaw of capitalism that we found, especially late stage capitalism, is the social promises just aren't there because it's, just a select few who hold the capital to make things happen, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. I mean, and I was listening to Ted Chang, uh, fellow Asian American author, Ted Chang, who I just worship the ground he walks <laughs> on. Um, and he was saying that capitalism and technology are so tightly intertwined that you can't really separate them. Um, and especially when you have this sort of pure space of abstraction called the internet, and billions of dollars in, in venture capital just kind of sitting there waiting to be spent on social experiments. Um, it, it really is 
it's a perfect recipe for what my other friend was calling neoliberal socialism, which is like, it, it, so just put it in plain terms, like let's, let's um, turn everyone to a cab driver and let's call it, you know, Uber and let's just throw a bunch of money on it. We don't know if it's going to work. Who cares? We have tons of money. Let's play around and see what happens. Um, all these drivers get paid really well because the business is not making money and it still doesn't make money. Um, but what's happening is all this money is trickling down from the venture capitals to these normal everyday drivers and they're getting a sort of living wage on this illusion. You know, this thing yeah. that's not even, it's not even capitalism. It's a socialist experiment. So that's why we call it neoliberal capitalism. <laughs> all the wild um, executives take like 80% cut of that money yeah. from venture capital. <laughs> this isn't a podcast about economics or, or business, but you, you say that, but I feel like <laughs> in almost every other episode, we bring up capitalism and I mean, how much we hate it. It is, <laughs> it is the, the, the big bad of our era for sure. And like, it, you know, really we either is, want to bring yeah. it down or we want to solve it. Right. If it's even possible to be solved. And um, what I enjoyed about your book is it, it reads like one part thriller, but also one part like Michael Lewis esque like, explanation of like this industry that you go in depth about what exactly internet companies do and how they make money and they make money off of their customers and yeah you yeah. know and also what they're willing to overlook to make that money because you know cyberbullying comes up in your book um mm -hmm. bad people can exploit the anonymity and the you know the ease of access of technology to do bad things and that yeah, companies totally. are willing to overlook it because Dealing with it will cost money and that would make their shareholders mad, right? That's yeah, their goal. I mean, I was writing this book when the the um, the ethnic genocides in Myanmar were happening and those were absolutely fueled by Facebook and Facebook turned a blind eye. Um, they could have helped stop it, but they didn't because their investors would have been like, what's going on here? Your KPIs are slipping. <laughs> and um, and it, it's just... It's sort of uh, it's because tech is so intertwined with capitalism and capitalism predicates itself on uh, infinite growth, which nothing in nature grows infinitely. So why would you expect us to be able to pull that kind of thing off? Um, and it, it, it would happen to me, too. Like when I was just kind of sitting around in the office shooting the shit with my coworkers, they're all we're all nerds. So all we're talking about are app ideas. And I, I sort of took one of these experiences and modeled it for a, a scene in the book where Max he just wants to help his friend Shane, um, whose girlfriend he happens to be madly in love with and is like low sick because he can't do anything it's, about it's, it. But it's pretty complicated. Yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> but his friend Shane has a pool cleaning business and he's like, you know, I can turn this into an app service, like an Uber for pool cleaning. And they don't want to make a ton of money. They just want to make enough. And when they bring it to investors, the investors are like, hmm. I, this is not enough money. It needs to scale bigger, 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 bigger. How about you? And then st they start going down the road of how about user data? How about we sell, we sell that stuff. Um, how about you turn it into a data collection service and then lose money on the actual pool cleaning service. And Max is like, no, no, that's, that's what I'm running away from. I want to <laughs> do the internet correctly and fairly and in a way that makes actual sense. And at a scale, that's a little more human. Um, and he fails, he has to quit. Uh, and that would happen to me and my buddies all the time. We'd come up with an app idea, like a photo sharing idea. And our other friends who are armchair VCs, not actual VCs, <laughs> they'd be like, well, how will it scale? And every time we'd be like, sell user data. And oh. that, that's kind of all roads lead to Rome, you know? Yeah. And so that a lot of the book was really inspired by that. But at the same time, I got to tell you, um, I wanted to write it as if it were a comedic dystopia, like Idiocracy, <laughs> um, which I love, because it is a comedic dystopia that we're living in. I mean, it's funny. There's a lot of stuff that is so weird and so kind of awful that all there is to do really is laugh at it. Um, I, there's there's actually too many examples of memes and trends on TikTok and what, what our phones have us doing um, that are just really absurd and ripe for comedy. And so I really wanted to make sure the book was not only fast paced, like short chapters and, and a thriller plot, but also yeah. really funny because I, I laugh at everything. I think everything's funny and also tragic at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> one of, one of the things I found really funny about your book was your character, uh, Brayden, the, uh, Gen Z oh, kid who, you know, who, He's part of a generation where, like, the internet already existed uh, by the time he was born. And, yeah, yeah like, um, when you're introduced to him, he 
is not going outside. He's just glued to his phone and his uh, game console. And that is all he needs to socialize. And uh, just a lot of the explanations he comes up with when they're when Max and his team is like, we we broke the Internet. So why are people like doing this? Like, why are people going in willingly to like sell their sell their data and why are they giving up their privacy and uh brayden's like we don't care about that we just you know we just want attention and that's all that matters and i was like wow um i mean it it's very sad and depressing but it's also very funny because um he's a kid and you're just like oh naive child (laughs) like (laughs) sweet summer child (laughs) i mean i so there is a part in the book where like, so first of all, like they, they start doing their, these hacks and they get the attention of this reclusive billionaire um, tech mogul who just kind of dropped out of the scene. And turns out the reason he dropped out when he, he, he talks to Max and he's like, I dropped out because I hated the world that I built. Um, it, it made him lose his daughter, made him lose his, his wife and his family. Um, and he wants to exact revenge uh, alongside Max to sort of atone for his life's mistakes. Um, and also he has billions of dollars. So he, he lets them pull off these amazing hacks that, you know, no mortals could do. Uh, he's, he has his own agenda that Max doesn't quite know about. So that's another part of the story. But one of the hacks they pull off is, is they get rid of all the likes. There are no more likes anymore and people freak out and they immediately want them back. And that's when Braden is saying the stuff you're saying, um, we're like, no, I need to be quantified and validated through this extremely cheap current, like this, through this extremely cheap currency called likes. Uh, and his point of view actually was really inspired by my own nephew. He's 16 now, but, but, um, he is immersed in, he was born in the internet. You know, he doesn't know anything else. Um, and a lot of kids are, are growing up in, in one of the biggest social experiments ever, you know, and what do you, what do you do when you have kids who, um, primarily socialize on Fortnite or among us, um, <laughs> I mean, I see him doing it. I'm glad he could do it, especially during pandemic. Uh, but I was asking him, how do you make VR more social? Because it's so antisocial. And he's like, well, you could have someone else with a headset and then be in the room, t- the same room together. And I was like, I was like, or you could take the fucking headsets off and just be in a room together. <laughs> but yeah. and, and he's not like a bad kid. He's not like a dumb kid. He's extremely brilliant and he's got a really good heart. But I worry for him because I've, I've been hearing stats about uh, this Gen Z and they're less interested in things like sex. They're less interested in romantic relationships or having kids um, because they've, they've seen the world mediated through a flat rectangle and all of their other senses are sort of atrophying. Um, the senses that you would normally build in a social setting or just, just hanging out in the same room together, just kind of doing nothing. The stuff that like I grew up with um, running around town until the streetlights came on uh, <laughs> this generation is the total opposite. So, and I'm wondering what impact that's going to have on them. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about, even thinking about this past year where there's probably a generation of like toddlers right now who are seeing the outside world outside of their home for the first time ever um, from like coming to consciousness. Right. And the fact that there are kids like, this was a question posed to me in grad school once, which is like planning for a generation where knowledge is, detached from learning right like what do you do when all everything you need to know is can be looked up by on wikipedia right so there's no reason to retain facts and knowledge because you can just look it up like and then what what do you remember then like how do you think about knowledge and what do you remember in that case and i don't know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're, we're thinking about creativity too me and me and nikki were talking mm-hmm. about this we're like creativity used to be you had to learn how to paint and manipulate a brush and choose materials and whatever and now it's choosing filters. Um, and, yeah. but, but here's the thing. I mean, we laugh at it, but like that it's, it is a valid form of creativity for very young people. Like they will see something you created just with presets on some app and they'll be like, Oh, it's amazing. You're so creative. And it makes you wonder like, what is creativity? Um, we, uh, before my generation, they had a very high bar for creativity. Yeah. You know, you had to make all kinds of stuff. So they probably would have been like, oh, you just bought a paintbrush? I had to make that, you know? <laughs> I mean, like yeah. with with kids on social media these days, I'm genuinely impressed by some of the TikTok videos that come out. I'm just like, wow, you oh, guys yeah. have like dancing and editing skills. That must have taken like 
three hours to make and it's only 30 seconds long. And yeah, yeah. Um, like I'm I'm a little bit younger than than Marvin. So like my generation was um, we didn't have the Internet until like late middle school or, or high school. Oh, wow. And it was like the social experiment of like of our parents saying like don't talk to strangers on the internet but we all talk to strangers on the internet it's nothing and, but strangers <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> and, and and it's like really funny because like now kids are just like let's talk to all of the strangers on the internet let's uh let's live stream all of like all of our lives and have it on display and that wasn't really part of the original plan when it came yeah. to the internet i mean but also like there, there are some good things about the internet that still, you know, it's like, I feel like it does help with socialization because um, for me, friends that I've made on like forums, like uh-huh. 10, 15 years ago, I'm still friends with them. I'm actually going to a wedding uh, for someone that I met on the internet. And we've oh, only wow. met like, we've only met like three times in person. So it's like, you, you can retain relationships. It's just a different set of social skills that you need yeah. to cultivate. That's, that's very true. And it, I, what you're, what you're saying is, is kind of related to something that Brayden mentions where yeah. it's like, um, kids are developing, I think out of a self, a sense of self-preservation, uh, a, two sets of personas, you know, there's the public set. Um, and then there's a private. So public is on Instagram, Facebook, although no one's on Facebook or on TikTok, And the private is on like discord or we're just texting a group chat. Um, and so you've got your two personas there and you, they understand that you don't do stuff on main that you would normally do on like on, on discord, um, which is like a more trusted environment and a more intimate friends only type of environment. So they're, I, I have some faith that they're learning how to manage their personas, but there's other stuff just like 4chan and just like, just unfettered, unlimited access to any kind of porn at any age is like that that is deeply disturbing to me and has so many huge implications on like just human relationships um that uh i i don't know the the, one of the big questions that that version zero it is a thriller it's got a lot of comedy in it because you know me i can't help i can't help with comedy stuff and it's got a lot of romance in it because you know max is really lovesick but at, at in the end what it's trying to do is ask the, ask the question or answer the question. Um, after all this time, has the internet actually been worth it? You know? And I think the book in its own way answers the question, (laughs) (laughs) but I want readers to be like, to just think about it. I want them to think about like, what, what do we give up willingly to in exchange for the privilege of using technology? And what does that mean for you as an individual? What does that, how does how does that change your definition of yourself? Yeah, it's a question we should ask ourselves every time we hit agree on one of those end user license agreements, right? <laughs> yeah, I take yeah. it with like a grain of salt whenever I say agree. I'm just like, they already have my data anyway. Like, does it oh, matter yeah. if it's like another company that has my data? But um, yeah, like um, I did want to like mention like um race is kind of like a big deal in your book i've noticed that like you have characters who are like white man or asian and um (laughs) your main character is salvadoran and it's mentioned like a couple times uh i just wanted to ask like why that was important to uh write in into the prose to like Um, specify uh the races of all of these characters it's because it's something i really noticed in tech and you know, any other industry, you could you could sort of just be like, eh, whatever. This is just garden variety, American caste system, American race racial caste system. Um, but in tech, it's it's. Uh, I thought it was worth calling out because tech always bills itself as this purely merit- meritocratic democratic society. It was founded, you know, by people like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, who were both hippies, you know. Um, and so you had hippies, hippie counterculture, which was also extremely white for all of its talk about universality. It was very white culture. Uh, and that met tech and that became the early Silicon Valley. And then that met venture capital and giving us the Silicon Valley of today. But it still has a weird foot in like utopian thinking 
where like we can escape the bonds of all of our all these preconceived notions about ourselves and who we're supposed to be and we can build our own reality kind of like that declaration of cyberspace which i think i found it was that was really funny like i think that's one of the funniest historical documents ever written and it makes me crack up every time i read it um but yeah so like if you're going to say that tech can make all of us free and we're all equal because all that matters is how good you are at tech and what you build for yourself online. Um, why, when you go to a typical tech company, is it so racially stratified? You know, you would think that it would be just kind of everybody everywhere, but it's not. And so I wanted to call it out for that reason. And also for the reason that you just don't see a lot of Latinos in working in tech, like virtually none. And it was every company I went to over 12 plus years, I saw like a tiny handful and I was like, what is that? You know, um, it, it just pointed out that the internet was very much English speaking at the start. It was very much Anglophilic, um, American, like white American. And so the technology had a bias in the very beginning. And uh, I figured I'd point that out by literally building a pyramid that people live on, like <laughs> a caste pyramid. I think I think that's like very true that race is tied to class. And we've we've definitely seen it in the pandemic. Like there are kids who come from families where they don't have reliable Internet connection. And we don't even think about it as like um, as like a privilege. It's like, oh, the Internet's free. Like Anybody yeah. can anybody can access it, but it's like, no, actually, like lower income families, you know, they have to like their kids have to like go to McDonald's to get like free Internet. Like they yeah, yeah. can't access the same level of education that a lot of upper middle class white families and even Asian families have access to. So, yeah, definitely like technology has ties to capitalism and to classism. And that's what I found like really interesting. And that's why I asked the question about uh, why you decide to put race as oh, like, yeah, a, yeah. like a factor. I mean, totally. And the classic example is the facial recognition software. Um, oh my God, those that, scare me so much. But I mean, it has trouble with black people. You know, it was not built by black people. If it were built by black people, it would have absolutely no problem with recognizing <laughs> black people. <laughs> I can guarantee that. So the bias is just, it's so glaring um, that to not call it out, I think would, it just wouldn't be as smart of a book. And I really wanted to write something smart and thoughtful. Yeah. So how has the uh, response been so far for, for version zero? I mean, people seem to really, really like it. Like um, they, they've been calling it really fast paced and really fun to read. And like they couldn't put it down, which is like such high compliments because I, I worked my butt off to make it that way, to make it like, I mean, I deliberately wrote really, really short chapters, you know, um, even really, really short sentences. I was sort of trying to channel um, George Saunders and Blake Crouch, who wrote Dark Matter, which I just, I worship that book, um, but also have some of that Ted Chang smart in there and some of that Margaret Atwood smart um, that I just worship her too. Um, so yeah, the reception's been good and mostly people are approaching it like, like um, they've been asking me questions like, like what do you what do you think has the has the internet been good or bad and I can't answer that. Yeah, <laughs> no one like, can, no one can answer that. My other favorite is like how can we protect ourselves? What are some tips on protecting yourself <laughs> on the internet? And I'm like there are none and you can't. Yeah. <laughs> you could be as I careful mean, you, as you possible. You have tips yeah. in the you have tips in the book. There are chapters yeah. where it's like oh here are five ways to protect yourself <laughs> if your cab driver is like a crazy person and it's like well you already called the cab on the app. Like you're you're doomed from the beginning. Not <laughs> nothing. None of these tips are useful. And yeah, like there's there's no way to protect ourselves from the, from the internet. Sorry, you guys. Like yeah. that's just the truth. We're we're doomed. I mean the the um the the big point is just I want people to be aware that we've we've signed into this contract. Um, and we can we continue to sign into it every day. Um, and the contract is part of the larger paradox that is capitalism. We're back to capitalism. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I wrote this essay that I'm still working on and it's called like how to live a hypocrisy free life. Um, and I mean, the answer is you can't. It's hard. Yeah. Back in the day, we were, we were like divest in South Africa and apartheid or don't buy Domino's pizza because they're, you know, pro pro or they're anti-abortion. And that seems funny now because our hypocrisy you know, we support companies that do bad things um, all the time, every day, especially now that so many companies are involved in 
uh, data warehousing, um, internet uh, exchanges, and just code libraries that are all baked in. So one app can can rely on 20 different companies in order just to simply function. And we, there's no way you can tra- keep track of what each company is doing. Yeah. Um, and so the scale and speed at which we're interacting with um, an, an ever-growing web of, of capitalist companies is it's too much for one person to even do anything about. Yeah. This comes up in your book a lot when you're addressing the many flaws of like the, how how modern day society operates, which and it's like the central concept of just economics and game theory, which is like people will do whatever is best for them. And so you have to assume everyone is out for themselves and the co- corporations have to figure out a way to, you know, game that and get you to do what they want because they know right, yeah. they know everyone has that like central need. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, but I mean, but, you know, it, at the same time, like I'm, I'm trying not to judge too harshly <laughs> because we have, on the other hand, we have this impulse for good. You know, um, we have it, it's Pride Month and <laughs> and like LGBTQIA plus rights have never been higher. And that's a great sign. So we have this impulse that we should be fair and we should treat each other like humans. Um, and I think that is sort of our our primal selves. Like we want, we understand each other when we're in small groups and we can look and look at each other in the eye and, and, you know, like, and we can use our body language to talk, but as soon as we like cars are a great example, as soon as we take millions of us and put ourselves into um, metal containers and erase our names and erase our faces and become vehicles and also give people tremendous speed. um, Then we wind up with road rage. It just, it brings up something bad in us, but I do think that we have an, an instinct toward good as well, because we know if we don't look out for each other, we're doomed. Um, I'm just, I don't know who's going to win out. Yeah. And, and that's sort of what the book is, is, is uh, focused on too. Yeah. I mean, good fiction asks those hard questions that have no <laughs> yeah. answers. People should stop asking David about what is the, <laughs> the right answer here. I just um, want to be like, I'm like, there's a love story and a bunch of shit blows up. <laughs> <laughs> Go read it. <laughs> and that's a that's a very apt yeah. description. Yeah. Speaking like. of love story, I, I, I do want to ask, how was it? Because you're probably better known as a YA rom-com author. How was it to write your first like adult fiction novel? Um, well, this is funny. Like, I actually started this book before Frankly in Love. Oh. And, you know, Frankly in Love is like super wholesome, super <laughs> sweet. Um uh, so it starts out as a rom-com and it goes into some like family drama stuff. Um, and my second book, which is Super Fake Love Song, that was even sweeter and more innocent. Like it was about this total insecure nerd who just fakes it till he makes it so he can impress a girl by being a rock star. I mean, it's like super sweet. Um, I was actually, I actually started version zero before uh, any of that. And it started out as um, kind of this thought piece on, this was back when, there are all those like 1%, 99% um, protests happening. Was it Zuccotti Park? Zuccotti yeah, Plaza? Occupy Wall Street, right? Occupy Wall Street, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was just sort of this general, like rich people, uh, 1%, poor people, 99%. Why do we do this? Why do we hoard money um, and render it useless? When you actually amass wealth, it becomes, it take, gets taken out of circulation and becomes useless. Um, which Margaret Atwood wrote. And my wife, Nikki, Nicola, she was like, this is all great, but it's just ideas. Can you make it into people? Can you make it personal? (laughs) And I was like, oh, you're so right. Ah, I suck. Um, And I was like, well, I worked in tech. Tech is all capitalism. That's very personal. So I I changed the whole story and redrafted it to be, you know, something that was closer to my heart. And that that allowed in elements like the, the love triangle and, the, the reclusive billionaire as a surrogate father figure for Max, you know, yeah. um, stuff like that. So it, it actually um, taps into stuff I'm just naturally interested in. I'm very much interested in love. Like I think love <laughs> is the thing that makes the world go around. I think without love, we're just, we're just insects. I don't know. Maybe insects. Love. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Insects. Did um, you, did you think that you had to um, write frankly in love and super fake love song first in order to like build up your craft to write uh version zero because version zero is like very ambitious in terms of ideas like you said and i feel like with with like frankly in love like it 
it seemed more personal. So like, I don't, I don't know, like, do you think those two books like prepared you enough like to, to complete version zero? I love that you asked that. And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, because it's so easy when you're writing about big ideas to just focus on the ideas and then your book becomes cold, you know, it's not as human. And the thing that I learned writing Frankly in Love and Super Fake Love Song, and also that I learned just living with one of my favorite writers in the world, Nicola Yoon, um, her, her whole deal is your stories must have emotional logic. You know, they just, they can't have like mechanical logic and um, intellectual logic. They have to, the characters must do things that make sense for them. Even if they're bad people or they're making a mistake, it has to make sense to them. Um, and I really admire that. So I, I I worked out a lot of stuff with, with in Frankly in Love. The first draft, like everyone gets along, there's no problems. <laughs> it was not that, it was not very interesting. And same with Superfake. I have a tendency to write a story, first drafts where like everyone's okay with each other and there's, and you're like, why am I reading this? <laughs> there's no problem being solved. And um, so it, it absolutely prepared me to make like version zero much more like a, a story about people. Uh, um, comedy and all the stuff that makes us human and not yeah. just about ideas because otherwise it's like you're eating steamed vegetables it's not great. <laughs> because yeah as we wind down this um, interview and thank you so much again david for joining us on um, books and boba um for people who want to pick up this book um what's something that you want them to i guess keep in mind as they as they read through the story of uh, max chain and the kiko um well i mean mostly i just want them to to be aware of, you know, like we were talking about before, um, you know, when the product is free, the product is actually you and you are giving up part of yourself for the privilege of using technology. And uh, just being aware of like, why are you using um, like TikTok, for example? Why do you feel compelled to, to get a bunch of likes for doing a quick change lip sync? Um, what are you getting out of that? And why are you motivated to chase that? Uh, and also, is it that the trend is happening because it's a trend or is it because TikTok engineered the trend and is sort of telling you <laughs> what you should want in the first place? Um, and if TikTok didn't exist, I'm just picking on TikTok. I don't know why. But it's it's uh, the new thing. So. Yeah. I mean, what, how would you know yourself what to want if you were if you didn't have that online context? Um, and if, if, uh, let's say the internet turned off one day, what would you do with your day? How would you define what you, what you wanted to do? Not just what you did, but you, what you decided to want to do. Yeah. yeah. I think those are pretty deep questions. And, um, I feel like depending on how old you are and your relationship to social media, your answer will be different, but <laughs> <laughs> But thank you so much, David. This was such a fun and insightful talk. I feel like we uh, covered so much in, you know, in the right? span of one hour. It's been a journey. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we go, um, what's next for you? What's what's in the pipe? Um, well, I'm pretty busy with uh, with Joy Revolution manuscripts. We have three books in the pipeline, which we're really excited about. Um, and I, I sold another book recently called City of Orange to my same editor, Mark Tavani, who published um, Version Zero. That one's a post-apocalyptic um, <laughs> psychological thriller about a guy who wakes up with no memory. He just knows that he needs to find his wife and kid and make sure they're okay. Um, and that doesn't have a release date yet, but it'll be probably next year. And uh, just working on other stuff. Where there's always writing happening in the Yoon household. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Yes, the the almighty Yoon household of <laughs> um david if people want to follow your thoughts online where can they go <laughs> after we've talked all about how we should do online things less um where can we where can we find your thoughts uh well i mean you can always go to my site it's just davidyoon.com um i i did just start a Substack um because uh, i just wanted to try it everyone's like Substack, it's way better than mailchimp so i'm like okay um but that's a place to i've been writing um these how-to guides that aren't really how-to guides. Uh, you'll see when you read them. <laughs> and I, I, have, I have been publishing a couple, uh, couple, two, three essays. There's one in the LA Times and there's one on LitHub under their crime read section. And I think there should be another one coming out soon. Um, and that's talking more about like our relationship with 
capitalism and the internet and mental hoarding, you know, how <laughs> our, our brains are actually houses that we live in and we should treat them as such um, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, but the hub for everything is just davidjun.com. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. And I hope we'll talk soon. Like we'll, we'll definitely bring you back on next time you have something cool happen. So oh, I would love we'll that. This is, touch. this is great. Thank you guys so much <laughs> for having me. I feel like we could have talked for hours about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, David. And that was David Yoon, the author of Version Zero, um, which is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, also check out his other uh, more YA rom-com friendly fair, um, Frankly in Love and Super Fake Love Song, also available in, at booksellers everywhere. Rira, that was a fun conversation. Yeah, yeah. Even those depressing topics, I had a lot of fun <laughs> talking. Um, you know me, I, I love talking about the evil of capitalism and, you know, how much I hate social media. I think it's great that we have authors that are exploring these topics because sometimes it's great to have a book to point them towards to say, you want to learn about um, why the internet is bad or why you need to be careful on the internet? Here's a book. Read it. It has explosions in it. Also, there's a lot of triangle. But also, you can learn about the internet. Huh. All right. Uh, Rira, remind us what we're reading for the month of June. So for the month of June, we are reading Happy Endings by Tian Kim Lam. Uh, it is a sexy rom-com uh, about a Vietnamese-American uh, businesswoman who runs a sex toy shop. And it's a second chance romance, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm really excited to hear Marvin's thoughts on it. Yeah, we'll also be discussing this with um, Just You and Han Lin, who are co-hosts from my other podcast, Good Pop. And they are both big romance now as well so i will be thoroughly outnumbered during this book club discussion but you know it should be fun i'm looking yeah, forward yeah. to you know looking forward to a spirited conversation about the relative points of this <laughs> of this story don't be scared marvin um and so with that um thank you for joining us once again for another episode of books and boba thank you to david you for joining us uh, for a great author interview um Vera, i'll see you next time Great. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 